Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we look at what's driving the explosive growth in the graduate degree market, and we dig into the data to show this rising tide is not lifting all boats. Our experts highlight the types of degrees, delivery formats, and pricing models driving much of the growth, and offer tips for institutional leaders on how to reach and enroll more prospective students. Give these folks a listen and enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Office Hours. My name is Will Lamb. I'm the Dean for Graduate and Adult Learner Recruitment at EAB, a former business school dean who works with our partners as they're thinking about um, uh, trends in the market, things to be doing to programs, and ideas for how to draw more students into those programs. That's that's what I do at EAB. I want to introduce my colleague for our discussion today, Brian Schuler. Uh, from EAB. Uh, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at EAB and and uh, perhaps a little bit about the research project we're going to talk about today. Yeah, thank you, Will. Uh, so uh, my name is Brian Schuler. Uh, I'm an associate director here at EAB on our research side. And what I've been doing over the last few years is focused on mostly data-related research, working with the data sets that we have, trying to pull out unique insights for our partners that are going to help with making strategic decisions um, primarily on undergraduate and graduate enrollment, but across lots of different areas. And this project that we're talking about today comes actually out of like uh, work we did originally in 2019 um, when we put together our Blueprint for Growth research uh, that was really looking at what's going on in the graduate enrollment space, graduate programs, what can we say about these areas as well as adult uh, education and you know, in 2019, we put together some really cool slides, and I think pulled out some really interesting insights. But as the years ticked by, we realized, hey, we needed to refresh this content. We needed to take another look into the data. And so today we're talking about some of our, what initially started out as just, let's update the data, update those slides, we'll send them out. And we actually found that over the past few years, some things have changed and some elements of what we're seeing in the market um, and the trends there are changing in ways that affect the strategy. And so wanting to pull out some of those really interesting sort of shifts that we've seen in the market. Yeah, and I, um, I've gotten to use the material that you all came up with many times with partners. I know people uh, are under an enormous amount of pressure for enrollments. And one of the things that's nice about your project has been that it helps people put things in context and it helps them lead a conversation across campus that's more fruitful and more realistic based on what's going on out there. So, um, you know, pe- people who are responsible for enrollments or worried about the growth of their programs, they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, because of the revenue importance of so many of these programs. And um, if, if, if the campus doesn't understand that this is, this is a, a result relative to what's going on in a market in general, um, then it can, it can put people unfairly under a lot of extra pressure. So I've really appreciated mm-hmm. the fact that you're helping us explain to people more clearly what's going on and how they're doing relative to how they should be doing based on so many different variables that you've been able to unpack and look at. And I know everyone's still worried about the fact that undergraduate enrollments are going to be challenged for some time now. And, mm-hmm. and that's making graduate enrollments and other unique approaches that could drive revenue more important for schools to consider um, than ever. Uh, and, and I know one of the findings you had was um, 
that graduate did grow much more than expected over the last uh, couple of years uh, in conjunction with the pandemic. Um, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear you break apart a little bit what that means, because sometimes I start with that when I'm talking with partners and I see them get a little bit worried that uh, the market seems to be doing well. But it's a very complicated picture when you when you scrape below the surface. It is. Yeah. So. At that high level, yes, we've seen the graduate education market grow. Uh, we saw that during 2020 as well as 2021. Actually, some of the fastest uh, growth in the past decade. Um, and this is actually something that we had projected out. We were putting together sort of our estimates back in June 2020 of what the pandemic was going to do to enrollments. And they were kind of early, rough uh, estimates. But we were looking at how unemployment and how there's this counter cyclical trend in education. And we felt like this is likely in the past, we've seen graduate enrollments go up when unemployment went up. And again, we saw that in fall of 2020, the uncertainty in the labor market led to more folks deciding, Hey, let's go back to grad school. Let's, you know, uh, sort of provide ourselves with this insurance policy in one aspect um, so that if you know they lose their job or something happens, they have this degree they're working on um, moving towards adding skills that can make them more palatable in the labor force. So we our projection model that we built actually was really pretty darn close to what happened. I think we were off by like 1% or so in terms of that uh, boost in 2020. Um, thing is, is that for 2021, unemployment all the way had gone way back down to below its long-term trend, uh, and we still saw growth. And so sort of an interesting element there where probably wasn't unemployment-driven in 2021, but more of this shift in the market where graduate education had become, some of the barriers to it had gone away. We saw more ability for folks to be going online and for people thinking about going to grad school, all of a sudden, online grad school wasn't this sort of foreign, strange thing that only a few people did, but actually like everyone is now familiar with going to school online. Everyone is familiar with going to work online um, because of the pandemic. And so I think that's part of what played a role in the continued growth in 2021. And so uh, really sort of interesting elements there. And a lot of those uh, benefits to the growth of grad education ended up actually accruing to some of those institutions that were typically a little more online before the pandemic as well. But um, so yeah, this definitely this sort of growth, but if you haven't seen it, if it hasn't been feeling on your campus, um, you're not alone in that. So yeah, I was gonna ask you what, roughly speaking, what was the breakdown? What percentage of schools grew? Yeah, so I think we had 47% of schools saw some growth over 2.5%. Um, and we saw, again, I think another 30, 34% uh, that actually declined during this period of time. Um, and this was really correlated with how much online or, or how online an institution was in 2019. So prior to the pandemic, the institutions that were really heavily online, like you're primarily online, you know, 95 to 100% of all of your grad students are enrolled online they actually grew by 11.4%. So huge, wow. huge, huge growth in their graduate enrollments. And the institutions that were, you know, 20 to 30 or 30 to 40% online, 
before the pandemic, um, they grew by two to 3%. But the institutions that had like less than 5% of their graduate students online before the pandemic, they still grew on average, but only by 0.4 to 0.5%. So much, much slower than the other uh, um, folks in the market. Um, and a lot, I mean, a lot of ways to think about that. It does seem though that you could make the conclusion that students are saying, I wanna go online and I wanna go online to somewhere that has intentionally put their programs online and that is, you know, wanna go to a built for online program rather than just go to a school and oh, because it's the pandemic, I want to attend online. So that, that, that big a difference between people who are already online and people who weren't already online uh, to me was was a really surprising result. Uh, not the, that there was a difference, but the extent of the difference and the and the steadiness of that pattern uh, that as you got more and more online, your growth got better and better. Um, that really stands out to me. I'd be curious to hear what what are your other favorite uh, uh, one or two key surprises, the things that just jumped out at you that you might not have expected in the data? Yeah, the the top hits of the 2021 data refresh. Uh, there's a few things there that I think really stood out to me. Um, and, you know, going a little bit further into some of this growth of grad enrollment this past few years, we weren't so sure about that because we know that there's a lot of international students who enroll in graduate programs. And we knew that, like, this is going to really, the pandemic and lockdowns, it was going to make it very hard for international students to get to the United States to enroll. And we did see a big drop in international enrollments. That international enrollments dropped by 11%, um, which is a pretty big chunk when you think about many, there's still a big chunk of international students who are in the U.S. who go straight into grad school. Yeah. It's a big drop there. What was surprising is we still saw growth in our enrollments because of huge explosive growth in uh, Black Hispanic enrollment, uh, as well as Asian enrollment. So minority enrollment uh, domestically in the United States went up really rapidly, uh, specifically Hispanic enrollment, which went up 10.2% from 2019 to 2020. You know, that's huge growth. Black enrollment was up 5.3%, Asian enrollment up 7.6%. Um, and you compare that with enrollment of white students that was, I think, up still a strong 2.7%, but definitely nowhere near those growth rates that we've seen for some of these uh, for black, Hispanic, and Asian students. So that was a really great thing to see. And that was really what allowed uh, graduate enrollments to boom, even with the loss of international students in 2020. Um, and then many of those international students did start coming back in 2021, which has helped continue that boom through there. So that's one thing, like the big increase in diversity in the graduate student population, uh, a big surprise to me. Um, the other thing I would say is some of the shifts in the programs uh, during this time. So we, we saw really dramatic increases in a few programs during the pandemic, uh, computer science being one of them. And this was a really interesting shift because in 2020, like growth in computer science slowed from the last few years. It was only 3%. But in 2021, uh, the growth from 2020 to 2021 was 20%. So already a big program, really dramatic growth there. And we also saw pretty healthy growth in biology and psychology. So I think the way that we have 
uh, thought about some of this shift during the pandemic is, you know, is it Bitcoin, biology, and burnout? You know, are those the things that folks are looking to do their, uh, you know, study in and education in? I think certainly computer science is seeing some growth because of the growth and an increased interest in jobs that you can do remotely. Computer science has long been one of those areas. Um, biology and health sciences, uh, something that obviously the pandemic has made folks in more interested in. Um, and we're definitely hearing more about psychology and applied psychology. It's probably hard to correlate or to, or to imply causation between some of those things, but we've definitely seen a lot of growth in those areas um, that has been much faster during the pandemic than previously. So those are a couple of things that really jump out to me. I know you've looked through the data as well. Anything that really stood out to you from some of these updates that are or standing out to the partners you're talking with? Well, you, you mentioned computer science. One thing I'm going to be interested in is I've noticed over the last few years that when I talk to schools who are considering, for instance, putting computer science programs online, I think this is true across several STEM fields, but when they think about putting computer science online and we look at whether or not there's a lot of competition in the region, we find an enormous percentage of schools have their computer science programs face-to-face -face and, and reliant on international enrollments over the years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of schools have yet to move computer science online, but that seems to be happening. So I, when I think about the disciplines, I, I wonder how many of the disciplines is the mix going to change online versus face-to-face -face, and how permanently is it going to change because now that may be the best way to get the headcount you're used to getting in that particular space. Um, I think, um, I think uh, uh, the disciplinary differences are important for schools to keep in mind. And I, I, I always put the caveat on here that, that when you're looking at the disciplinary differences, um, it's important to really take a hard look at yourself and say whether or not our institution is equipped to move into mm -hmm. some of those hot disciplines uh, and whether we have the pieces in place to have a likelihood of success. Because one of the things that I think is going to happen based on some of these findings of yours is um, that people, people will be doing lots of new things. Uh, it, with their programs, and you're not going to be able to compete effectively if you don't build from that base of strength. You're going to want to be able to get into this more dynamic, more competitive market that we're beginning to see take shape by using your best stuff and, and, and leveraging the programs where you've got the strongest faculty, the best equipment, the best software, the best tools, uh, the best networks to external partners. Um, I think that's going to be increasingly important. There's a thing about your point on diversity I wanted to point out. We, every year we do in adult learner recruitment a, a, a survey of prospective students. And last June, we did a survey of prospective students, uh, 2,000 of them, and ask them all these questions about what's important for them when they look at a program. And one of the things that stood out to me before I even saw your results was that we had a statistically significant increase in the number of students who said the diversity of the program is important to mm -hmm. me. And I think when you put that together with the growth in underrepresented minorities moving into graduate programs uh, and the change from historic patterns to a pattern where a higher percentage of people in, in these groups are going to graduate school, uh, you put that together with the preferences that we saw, uh, I think that's an interesting finding. That schools, I feel like there's several reasons to believe in the data you've got and the data we see in our survey, several reasons to believe that the better your institution's doing on its diversity initiatives, the better your performance 
probably was during the most recent um, um, disruption, the most, you know, during this pandemic. Um, uh, if schools have not taken steps to make progress on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and making sure the climate of their program and the, and the features of their program are appealing to a broad range of audiences, they're going to be in a much worse spot competitively, I think going forward. So that, that one really stood out to me. Now, I know from your prior work that you'd already pointed out um, that, that the shift toward online was happening in the grad space, mm -hmm. that we already saw more than 8% per year growth uh, over the last decade in uh, online enrollments while we saw face-to-face -face enrollments retreating a bit. Uh, and face-to-face -face is still very important and it will continue to be, but online is taking more and more of that market share. Um, and we saw that explode during the pandemic. I I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on some of the interesting things you see happening as far as what, what types of schools uh, we need to be looking at carefully, what, what, uh, who's doing well and who you think looking out into the future is likely to be a type of school people need to be really keeping their eye on when they look at their own programs and how to compete. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, it's an interesting thing and definitely a great point to say like online was growing and growing rapidly really before the pandemic in the grad space. Um, you know, actually, if you just, if you strip out online, graduate enrollments were declining in the face-to-face -face programs alone um, by about 2% a year. Uh, of course, one thing that's challenging with looking at this data is that 2020, of course, upends some of the data we have on online education because uh, so many students went online for emergency reasons. So the high-level data shows, well, there was a 63% increase in online enrollment, um, you know, 637,000 additional students in online education in 2020. And most of that is going to be your it's students who would have been in person, who enrolled in an in-person program. They intend to go back to an in-person program, just being shifted online and being counted as online in 2020. So, you know, do we expect this 63% increase that we saw in 2020 to just persist? No, we're going to see this, you know, uh, a bounce back as classes and programs start going back in person, probably already have gone back in person at this point. Um, that said, though, there are some institutions and some programs where this sort of shift online is probably going to have pretty big impacts moving forward. Um, you know, starting with some of those really large, uh, you know, online giants that we know about, many of them saw pretty decent growth during the pandemic um, that was outsized compared to what they'd seen before. Um, in particular, you know, Liberty University and Western Governors University saw really dramatic growth in their online programs. And that really can't be explained by shifting in-person folks to online. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, that's an area too. And you think about some of the institutions that shifted the most students online. Um, if we're looking at just those numbers, it was Columbia, it was Harvard, USC, Georgetown. Like Harvard shifted 16,000 students from in-person to online programs. So, and... I'm really interested in how their programs are moving forward because they've actually been pushing in online space uh, as well as a lot of other of these AAU schools, schools that you don't really think of as these big online giants. They're not the Southern New Hampshire, University of Phoenix, those institutions. They're known for their in-person programs, but you know, 
your Harvard's, your University of Illinois, your John Hopkins universities increasingly have been pushing into online education even before the pandemic. And I think that this could be a springboard, uh, you know, something that is helping reduce some of those barriers to advancing online education at those institutions. Also making students who are like, hey, I want to go and get this elite college experience uh, much more willing to say, and I might do it online. Yeah, that's going to be more convenient and easier for me. Um, I just saw the other day, there was this, and I think you'll find this interesting, Will, but there was a report that Harvard Business School is now making just as much money on their online offerings as their in-person executive education offerings, which is a dramatic turnaround, I think, from where they were just you know a few years ago, where online was sort of this small thing that they did. So you know. Yeah, just just eight or nine years ago when I was uh, very aware of them because I was located kind of down the street from them, uh, their their dean had quoted, was quoted as saying that, you know, we would have online learning over my dead body. And then within mm-hmm. a year or two, he was already helping push some really important innovations that have evolved into being a really big part of their business. Um, and I think that's the pandemic. I wonder how many schools have learned some things about themselves during the pandemic that is going to mean we have um, a much more diverse market for prospective students to choose from and a much wider range of institution types to choose from when they go look for programs. And one of the things we don't really know yet is how many people would really like to have a wide array of choices in online programs, but look further afield because they don't see programs they like or that feel like the right fit yet in that space. Um, I think the, the more we see schools popping up that feel like good fits to people, the more we're gonna see some acceleration toward the convenience, the flexibility, um, um, and the ability to take uh, work, travel, new job and new location, and all the other things that go with being in an online program versus an on-ground face-to-face program. Mm-hmm. I also just think one of the things that's going to continue to be a challenge for us as we charge so much for what we offer people that they, they, in a sense, have to have the flexibility in many cases. The way they're going to pursue this dream of getting graduate education is they have to keep the lucrative job they've got in order to be able to keep their um, finances from getting completely out of whack by stopping and taking a break. So I think full-time programs, not just part-time on-ground, but full-time on-ground programs um, particularly for domestic students, are going to are going to continue to feel pressure um, because because in part because of what we charge uh, mm-hmm. people. But I one of that I, that was another one of the findings that is in your study that I that I found fascinating was that um, you could distinguish between the the schools that were likely to have temporary growth versus the schools that were likely to be growing their core online offerings in a way that might not be temporary. Yeah, yeah. So we we were able to look at some of that 2020 growth and seeing, okay, where is a lot of this online shift mostly temporary? And uh, being able to see, okay, you know, most of the institutions that we saw really doing a lot of that shift online, um, you know, was that temporary element. But some others really stand out there. Um, you know, Johns Hopkins University of Illinois and Florida State were ones where actually it looks like they grew more online organically. The one that I think is very interesting out of that is this is the institution we think grew the most on like organically online during the pandemic. 
And it's one I had never heard of before until looking at this data. And it's called the University of the People. Um, and so I looked into them a little bit and really sort of a, a interesting, different approach to providing graduate education. Um, they added 9,000 additional graduate students uh, from 2019 to 20, um, 2020. And they advertise themselves as a very low cost, low support university, you know, no tuition cost there. You only pay for basically, I think, a course, uh, a, a test fee, essentially. It's all volunteer faculty. The assignments are all peer graded. Um, and so it's really not very much of a faculty member grading the assignments. It's all peer graded. It's mostly these assignments that are um, on fr based on free or external resources. Um, it's sort of this extreme version of the, you know, where institutions have been going in the past, which is, you know, these large classes, these low support, um, but very, very affordable, very, very cheap uh, offerings. And I'm, you know, I think I'm not really sure what to think about University of the People at the moment. It seems like it's very exciting and uh, for many students and very interesting for uh, definitely a subset of the population. Um, but also, is this the way that all institutions should go? I don't know if I would say that. I think this is definitely one of the extreme versions. But I'm curious what you think about that sort of, uh, you know. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because I think it meets a lot of the criteria for what Clayton Christensen called a disruptive technology, which is something that starts off as inferior and doesn't meet most people's needs. But there's a particular group of people who might not buy the normal product, the usual product, but find this appealing for some reason, one, one reason being that low, low price. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things about a disruptive technology, if, a, if an organization like University for the People um, or University of the People, I've got to get my prepositions right. <laughs> if the University of the People builds a nice audience and has some exciting growth for new types of folks who weren't going to otherwise be able to pursue graduate education, they have the opportunity to potentially grow up toward the other programs that are out there and expand their offerings and expand their features and grow into being something that's more of a direct threat. And, and the big question for a disruptive technology is where, when would they get to the point where a lot of people in the main market would actually start to see the thing they're offering as being a pretty appealing offering that satisfies their baseline needs? Um, if, if you get to that point with some of these newer approaches, then you really get into something that could could upend the market. And, and one of the things that I took away as a key lesson when I was studying the stuff Christensen was talking about was that if a school isn't at least experimenting in some of those areas and trying out some unusual things of their own, if you're not in very early and experimenting and trying these new ideas, you're not likely to get into the space. The space mm -hmm. could potentially overtake an important part of your market. Um, and he uses industrial examples, but I think higher education, we see a lot of different things going on, uh, not just with this one example, but things like LinkedIn Learning and Grow with Google and other offerings that are out there that have the potential to grow into being things that satisfy more and more people's needs over time. And I'd, I'm hoping to see more universities try some innovative things 
in that space. That actually brings me to my last key point, which was that I was a real MOOC skeptic. I, <laughs> I did not love the idea of MOOCs. I, did, I was not uh, a fan. I thought that might be a fad. And a lot of people seem to think it was a fad, but it's it's a, it, it, it was it was a fad for a while that seems to be turning into something real now. And, and some of what you studied and looked at in this research points to some interesting observations about the MOOCs of today and how they might be different from the MOOCs we saw in the past. Yeah. And, you know, MOOCs are an interesting story. I think I think there is sort of a evolution of the MOOC over the past, you know, it MOOCs feel like they were around for a while, but it's really only been like a decade um, where they really kind of started off in 2012 and 2013 um, as being, you know, like, oh, this is the great democratizer and we're going to have everyone going to school for like 20 bucks uh, and, you know, get all of these classes. And, you know, we didn't really see that happen. Uh, it turns out that very tough to, uh, that's not really the way that you can create education um, and high quality learning for a lot of students just by throwing something on a video and having folks follow along. But I think that institutions have experimented and moved with that. And we're now seeing, I think you could call them MOOC-like master's degrees, MOOC-like uh, pathways into programs where using a lot of the elements of a MOOC that seem to work pretty well. The, um, you have you know, the um, asynchronous programs that are pretty large, but have a lot of uh, teaching assistants who are helping provide support um, but only one faculty member providing a really large class and using this to kind of stack into programs. So, um, you know, you've got University of Illinois IMBA. You can start into these programs, you know, without actually applying. You can do these programs on Coursera or uh, edX um, to you, uh, get a feel if you like the program, and then later decide if you want to get into them. And also at a pretty affordable price point, not necessarily that price point that was originally the idea of it being completely open, completely free, but still closer to that than you would say a traditional program. And so we are seeing more of this, uh, you know, institutions moving in this direction. And I think this is an area where uh, some rapid growth among, uh, we've seen rapid growth from among institutions in their enrollments that have tried this out. Um, you know, Georgia Tech, MIT, University of Illinois, MBA, that's a great example there, um, playing into this area and finding that they can, this is building a new market for themselves rather than cannibalizing their yeah. traditional space. Uh, that might not necessarily be true for other institutions. You know, uh, you might end up having to pick one or the other, but uh, uh, it's definitely some interesting, like how the, the, the maturation of the MOOC, you might say, is what yeah. we're seeing today. Yeah, and you'd see some quality institutions, as you say, like University of Illinois, MIT, Georgia Tech, trying some creative things that get people into a quality program uh, at a much lower price point than they otherwise might, and being able to try something out before they make the firm commitment to spending a large quantity of money. One of the things about Illinois that's interesting to me is it's one of the first fully online programs that's drawing a substantial percentage of its students, more than 20% I've read, uh, from outside the U.S. So you've mm -hmm. got you've got a, a lot of online programs that theoretically could draw international students, but never do because 
we're selling something at a U.S. price point that might not make sense to a lot of people unless they're going to be able to come to the U.S. and experience study abroad uh, experience, a richer, fully uh, uh, on ground study abroad experience. Uh, Illinois is one of the first schools that's made some inroads into selling online program seats to fo folks from outside the U.S., which I, I think is something important to watch uh, looking forward. So I know looking looking at the clock, we're up we're up against it. We've gone uh, past our time already, and uh, I wanted to just hit a few key takeaways for folks based on everything that you've said so far. And feel free to chime in and amplify anything that I'm saying. I first takeaway for me was that we see growth, but we don't see uniform growth that everyone's benefiting mm -hmm. from equally. We see a much more complex picture in terms of the growth that uh, people have enjoyed over the last couple of years based on their, their region, their disciplines, their mix of diversity, uh, and the degree to which they were already online. Um, I think in the online space, uh, to me, one of the things that came out of what you've talked about today is just that, um, there's so much happening in the online space and it, it, we see some early tremors that a lot more interesting things are going to happen in that space. Have you got any last advice for anybody as to what they should be watching or thinking about as they look at the evolution of the online space over the coming years? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense to be uh, looking at how programs are changing. Look at how your competitors are getting into this space. Um, and I think that when we talk with a lot of our partners, they're very interested in wanting to launch a new program, um, launching those, you know, like, oh, should we get into this area or that area? And that's important. I think equally as much there should be a thought of how can we get the best, you know, you alluded to it earlier, like really leading with your best content, your best programs. I think it maybe more of the way to be thinking about it is saying, how can we make sure that the best stuff that we're put, you know, that we provide to our students, our best programs, Let's try and get them out to students in lots of different ways, thinking about sort of the multimodal delivery of your best content rather than creating more and more programs um, that are sort of separate. Uh, but that's sort of one thing we're seeing. I think it definitely makes sense to be talking to, uh, you know, thinking about your faculty, how willing they are to provide this sort of, you know, online experience moving forward because the barriers have changed there looking at your competitors, how they are changing their stance in the area. And of course, the students making sure you're asking them about their preferences because they've changed. And, and to me, all of that leads to the final point for me, which is that this is a very turbulent environment. And I think it's more important than ever that schools be open to innovating and experimenting and trying new things without getting hung up on exactly which things work, but trying, trying new things and trying to um, um, expand your reach into some new areas mm -hmm. with that innovative approach so that you've got more to build on whichever way this market goes. Because it's going to, I think, continue to be uh, a more turbulent, harder to interpret, harder to predict space than it's been in the past. But it doesn't make it an unexciting space. Absolutely. Well, and as we can keep doing the research, we're going to hopefully be able to continue trying to decipher some of this turbulence moving forward as well. So uh, next, hopefully the next uh, update to the Blueprint for Growth uh, research that we do in the next year or so um, can continue some of what we've been able to find today. I'm really looking forward to, to hearing about that as it unfolds and having the opportunity to share it with partners. So thanks for talking today, Brian. Yeah, thank you, Will. Enjoyable. Take care.
Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we take a look at how early alert systems, a staple of student success efforts for at least a decade, impact different types of students in different ways. Until then, thank you for your time.